Welcome to the e-commerce growth show brought to you by Segmentify. Hi everyone and welcome to the first episode of the Women in E-commerce show. We will be sharing the stories of amazing entrepreneurs and professionals though always keeping an eye on the current digital trends and on the e-commerce fast-evolving market and challenges. The show is powered by Segmentify and co-hosted by Annabella and Lavinia, myself. So th since this is the first episode, I think we should probably give some info about ourselves, Annabella, before speaking to our awesome guest, Anne. So yeah, Annabella, you go first. Hi, everyone. Lovely to be here uh, co-hosting with Lavinia, this amazing women in commerce show. Um, I'm the owner of a performance marketing agency in Romania, but it's 10 years ago, so yoohoo, uh, looking forward to many years to come. Um, and we are a Google Premier Partner, Facebook Partner, and helping uh, over 500 businesses to grow in their digital environment. Uh, Lavinia, let us know something about yourself. Yeah, um, I'm the co-founder of Nama Studio, which uh, doesn't have a long story like your agency does. We were born three years ago, so right before COVID hit Italy. Very interesting time to start an agency. We build and migrate e-commerces on Shopify. So we know very well the Shopify platform. Um, I'm not as technical as you when it comes to digital marketing. So we'll probably be covering the more general questions. Yeah, so Maybe. I think it's start to actually chat with Anne. So thank you, Anne, for joining us today. Anne, is, uh, Anne Stanley is the founder and CEO of Anika Digital, an award-winning digital marketing agency based in Leicester. Um, so, Anne, thanks for being here. Thank you very much for inviting me. That's very kind of you. So, shall I tell me a little bit about my story? Yes, please. Yes, please. Okay. So, um, as you can tell, I'm slightly older than Lavinia and Alabella, which means, first of all, I've been in digital marketing for 20 years, which is really scary. But I had a career before then in, in science and biology. So, I'm on my second career. Um, I have, I'm the founder and CEO of a digital marketing agency called, Le um, called Anika Digital, and we're based in Leicester in the middle of the UK, so right in the middle of the country. Um, there's just under 30 of us, and uh, unlike Annabella, we've only got around 45 clients, but actually we do some <laughs> similar sorts of things. So we very much started off as a search agency, um, and my geeky area is uh, Google Ads, um, but then we've added in, uh, of course, all the other paid social and we do PR and SEO and analytics. And and I really love the sort of the science side of that. Um, so I'm into all the data and the analytics. And then more recently, just to balance that out, you know, a bit of art and, art and science. We put in a bit more creativity. Um, so we're, we're, we're working with some great clients and, and doing some great work. That's amazing. Lovely. We really love your your story. How how did you start? <laughs> how did you make this career switch? Because it, it sounds so interesting. You know, many of us come uh, uh, straight into marketing, into digital. Um, what's the, yeah, the I mean, background? When I when I um, started my career, um, I was I, I was into biology, so um, I wanted to do forensic science, and I actually worked in medical research. And then I ended up working for the leather industry, which sounds very strange. But actually, I'd already started to do some of the sort of the consultancy and the training in order to grow that business. Um, and so towards the end of that, um, which was sort of in the 1990s, I was learning a little bit about marketing. We had to do a new logo and we had to sort of promote the business. 
So I started to get into marketing and thought, oh, I lo- I'm loving this. Um, and this was really at a time that, you know, digital marketing didn't even exist. I mean, the first mention of, um, of digital marketing at that point was called e-marketing. And it was really about email, etc. So I then moved into a slightly different career. I sort of, I'd hit a bit of a female glass ceiling and, and, you know, you had to wait for the directors to die before you could be promoted. It was a bit like that in that industry. And it was a very male orientated industry. So I moved sideways into doing clinical trials and clinical trials is basically recruiting volunteers to take drugs for money as part of that um, process. And that's when I actually learned real marketing and I did my Chartered Institute of Marketing exams and, there's this thing called e-marketing. I thought, oh, this is interesting. So what I really liked about marketing at that point was the sort of the combination of the data and the science and the experimentation. So eventually what happened was about, as I said, 20 years ago, I got my first job in a digital marketing agency. And um, I started off in a sort of a business development training consultancy role where I really got to understand the technology now, this predates Google Ads, guys. This is before Google AdWords was around. It used to be through Yahoo. So I'm, I am really am giving my, you know, my age away here. But um, we, we was, I was doing that for a few years. And then a friend of mine decided and myself decided to build a property website selling um, uh, properties off plan, buy to let properties. And that's when I really learned how to use Google Ads because or AdWords as it was. Because we were spending our own money, we were, you know, this is this is sort of over 15 years ago, we were spending 4K a month of our own money. So I suddenly realized that I was really good at that. So anyway, we ended up um, forming the first version of Annika 15 years ago. So it's actually our 15th birthday. Um, and my route to market was very much by education, doing lots of training courses. I think we first met Annabella when I was speaking yeah. at a conference. Um, something like SMS or something like that. Yeah, well, that would have been 12 years ago because I, th- I think I did 10 years on a trot at SMAC. Um, and so the philosophy really was, um, you know, how could we do everything um, with a bit more data? Um, and that's when Annika was born and it, and it sort of gradually evolved over the years. Lovely. And speaking of data and the science side of things, I was uh, really interested when I read on your website that you value the geekiness of the people that work at Annika. Um and I was wondering, since you have this science background and you still are really digging into the data yourselves, how do you balance being the CEO of the company and actually keeping being hands-on on the data themselves? Well, um, I'm quite fortunate that I've got two other directors. So last year I swapped from being managing director over to CEO. And um, what's always been great is, is that I sort of passed over the sort of responsibility for the operations to the team quite a long time ago. And I do think it's really important that if you're going to run an agency or any business, you've got that visionary and that you've got that integrated person that one's responsible for looking outside, dealing with clients and all that sort of stuff. And you've got the person who just makes it all happen. They're the sort of the engineer behind the scenes. So um, that has meant that um, I've still been able to keep my hand in into doing audits and training and consultancy. Um, and I still love, um, I'm dreading GA4 because I just sort of know, um, you know, Google Analytics inside out and uh, I can just go in and find any information or I love going and getting the tools or going into an account and auditing it. Um, and the difference between myself and, um, you know, some of the really highly skilled technical people that we employ is, is that I'm always looking at the bigger picture and how they all join together and, and, and how that impacts the business commercially. 
Um, and I do think that the advantage of being a CEO or a director is you understand the bottom line, you understand profitability. And this is even more important in an e-commerce uh, environment where literally, you know, ROAS or return on investment is absolutely everything. Um, so, you know, you can have the best click-through rate in the world or the best quality score in the world in a PPC campaign, but it could still be losing money. And if you can't understand the impact on the business, then that's a problem. So I'm very lucky that I'm still allowed to do, you know, still allowed to do that and um, and still got a part to play in that. Um, and, you know, anything we can do on training or anything like that. But um, and then I just sort of help out on the other bits. And we've got a good senior management team. So it's sort of a it's it's all about using people to the best ability. What am I best at? What can I do? Um, and, and using other people to the best of their ability. How do you encourage the, the women in digital in your agency? I know it's a sensitive topic. I don't want to be sexist or anything, but have you seen any differences here any, um, in, in, in terms of skills, in terms of um, the way they approach work? Um, I guess I've worked in some quite male-orientated industries. So, for example, the leather industry, you know, it was an advantage being female because you're the only person at the conference standing up and talking about something. Um, and, you know, you could really stand out because you were unique. In the in pharmaceutical industry um, and clinical trials and marketing generally, it was always a pretty even split. So because we never, although we did build websites for a little bit and I've got lots of friends who are sort of a male, male develop, um, website developers, I've always found that the people applying for jobs, it's always been pretty 50-50. And in fact, I'd even say we probably have more women applying for digital marketing jobs than we do men. So I'll give you a good example. We've been running these amazing digital mar um, marketing, um, they're called digital skills boot camps, which is funded by the UK government. So we've got these incredible schemes going on at the moment. And um, we put through something like 250 people through this year so far. And about 70% of them have been female. So it's really interesting that um, the gender split, unless you get into the real geeky areas, the technical areas, tends to be pretty even. And I do think we've had some policies which make it easier for women to work with us. So particularly around maternity and you know childcare and flexibility. We, we've always been really high on that. So, but maybe it's just because I am a female um, CEO and I've always been sort of, very public we've just sort of attracted more women and maybe I, I i just don't see the problem whereas i think maybe if you were a female working in a very male orientated um uh agency where it's all white males of a certain age then you know it could be a real issue um we're also in a really diverse city so we've got a very high bane community so we have a lot of um people from different cultures um, at one point, we had a third of our staff were from uh, being different ethnic minorities. It's not at the moment. It does vary as people, you know, as you get a certain amount of people coming in and coming out again. Um, so I thought actually that was slightly underrepresented. Um, and then you've got other issues like ageism. I think ageism is, you know, I'm I'm quite old. Uh, I'm nearer to retirement uh, than I am at the beginning of my career. And um, I think that there's quite a lot that happened in a lot of people that are in their 50s or late 40s who find it really difficult. You know, they might have been working in marketing all their life, but they've never ever got into digital marketing. And um, they're paid quite a lot lower than, you know, say one of my account managers that's 30 is probably on £10,000 more than somebody has got 20 years experience so there's quite a lot of differences that way as well I think we're quite lucky <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, I mean, also you probably created an environment which attracts uh, diverse uh, candidates, which I, I think, think is so. amazing. I think so. Yeah. But you do have to have certain policies, you know, you have to put you, you know, your money where your mouth is. So, for example, I remember when um, one of my first employees had twins, which was a real shock to the system, and then finding out, you know, how little maternity pay they got and, um, you know, and actually all the things you had to do and all that. And that was, and you had to basically find somebody to replace them and all that sort of stuff. And I think that was probably over 10 years ago that we went through that first experience. Um, and then, of course, they wanted to come back. They wanted to come back part time. Well, at that time, people didn't want people to come back part time at all. And she was head of department. And so we had to learn to be flexible really early on. Um, and we always were as flexible as we could be. But of course, since COVID, we've just taken that, you know, we, we, we've almost become remote first. Everybody we employ, you know, they've got, they, they've got the choice of working hybrid. We just ask them to come in once a month for a good staff meeting and a bit of a social. So we try and be as flexible as we can. I think that just makes it really easy for people. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, finding the right people is such a crucial issue at the moment for businesses of all types, of course. So, um, yeah, digging a bit deeper maybe into that. Uh, my question is, how do you attract talent? If you had to give a suggestion to an entrepreneur, what do you think are the most important things, considering that, of course, companies can differ from each other? Yeah, I think a lot of people talk that they're flexible. Um, I think people's, I think the story is very different now than it was three years ago. So um, I think if you've got enough of a brand that people recognize you, most of the people that you were, um, were employing were, would have been local. Um, they may have commuted from the local town, but even then most people would work within their city and come to work and everything. So having a bit of brand recognition, you know, doing good quality work, you know, giving, doing free conferences and things and people seeing you out and about. I did loads of training through the local chamber of commerce. So loads of people knew me. So we nearly, never really had very much problem getting people. Uh, the other thing that we used to do, which we did really early on, and, and I would absolutely advocate this, is probably the best bit of advice on recruitment, is, um, and you need to do it every year, you can't just do it once, and we've made this mistake, but it's to take advantage of the local universities. We've got two or three universities, um, well, three universities within 20 miles, but two within the city, and they've got some brilliant courses. So what we used to do is every year we would do something called a recruitment boot camp. And it, uh, it used to be two weeks, but we've reduced it down to five. And it's almost like um, the program The Apprentice, which you probably know from Trump and Alan Sugar. And effectively, there's a bit of training and then they do a presentation and everything. And um, we normally would say interview 20 people and put 10 people through the course. And then we would employ two of them. But they forget that they're being interviewed and actually they really rise, the, the really good ones rise to the top. But they've not wasted their time during that week because they've learned those as well and they usually go on and do great things. Um, so my only regret on that is that we haven't done it absolutely every year because some of the stars that we've had through that, you know, are now sort of, well, one's um, one's at my, my MD and another one's head of um, the two, you know, two um, operations manager type role because we've got pods now. And, uh, yeah, um, do that every year. Um, but if you want to do it now, then you've genuinely got to be flexible. So the idea that, you know, we've got people from all over the country working here and we pay for their expenses to come in that sort of two or three days once a month. Um, but we really are hybrid and we are, we, we've had to put in the technology to be um, uh, remote first. Um, and you have to pay a decent wage because um, if you don't, somebody else will. 
Absolutely. Yeah. How important is the um, the culture of your agency when when hiring? Because that's something distinctive, and I know you um, you communicate that openly uh, and inspire also other agencies into making shifts I, and I hope so I mean to be honest we don't always get it right and what's a little bit um of an issue I think is that everybody else thinks somebody else is doing better when they look at social media so it looks like everybody's Absolutely. doing a brilliant job um and we also find that you know we we can we've always wanted to be like a family in the sense that you know we want to look after our team But the interesting thing is, is it does evolve. So um, when we first started the agency, there was a lot of younger people that didn't have any families. And, um, you know, you could go to the pub and party and do things like that. But then a lot of them started to get married and had kids and they didn't want to do that anymore. So there was a sort of like shifting culture. Um, and then, of course, during the COVID situation, a lot of people just wanted to do completely different things. You know, we had somebody that had been working with us for 12 years. So I want to go and work in house. I want to do something different. Um, and so you you sort of lose some of that culture by getting when you get change of people. And then also, I think it's uh, quite difficult if you are all working remotely. So we are doing things like we are asking people every month how they're feeling and 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 trying to sort of gauge. but we we are trying to reinforce a little bit more by doing more social stuff together because um, I think, I, 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 although I think we've got a pretty strong culture and it's really the directors who believe in looking after the team, you know, we'll, we'll look after the team before we necessarily look after the profits, which may not be the right thing to say. Like, I don't know about everybody else, but we've got a terrible cost of living crisis in the UK, fuel prices and everything. Inflation is a nightmare. And I know other countries will have something similar, but about April time, we sort of saw it come in. And we just gave everybody a 5% pay rise. Um, obviously, now it's probably not enough, but we just did it off our own back before, you know, everybody else did it because we just thought, you know, everybody's going to be really struggling. Um, so we wanted to sort of help people out. So there's, there's, there's quite a lot of that, but I don't think we, um, we work hard enough as we should do it. But I also think that the directors and the senior management team are pretty open and friendly and we're really honest and um you know we tell people the facts we tell them how much money we're making and where we're not and what's happening so i think having an open culture where you genuinely care about people and you generally try and look after them um if you genuinely do it at the top that does filter down um i don't think you can fake culture i think that's probably my biggest message i think if you if you really are just doing it to make as much money as possible you might as well just be honest about it and, you know, pay your way through. But if you genuinely care about people and you want people to stay around for a long time, then you, you, you've got to make more of an effort. Yeah, I think that's a very valuable lesson to share. Um, <laughs> and, and, and very true, being flexible not only means allowing to work remotely, but also being able to change the culture with it, the people that work in the company. So, yeah, thank you for that, Anne. And... <laughs> Since you mentioned the changes that COVID brought to everyone's lives, but of course also the way you run business, maybe we could start moving into the topic of the big changes the e-commerce market has witnessed Whoa, in the last yes. few years. And probably, Annabella, I'll leave the more technical questions to you. But yeah, could you give us 
just an idea what well, you saw yeah, happening I mean, in the last few years. We, we started the beginning of 2020. You know, we had sort of January and uh, January that year was probably our best month. We were just about to really go on a massive growth. You know, we were hiring lots of people. And then suddenly COVID hit and we lost 50% of our income overnight. So we we weren't even in particularly strong in tourism. Um, so we sort of um, basically let everybody go that wanted to go. Um, we felt, well, if they couldn't afford us, if they could, they'll come back. Um, and we just sort of you know did the right thing for people. Fortunately, in the UK, we were very lucky. We had a really strong furlough um, offer, which allowed us to keep most of the staff, although a few people did change and you know a couple of people did some slightly different things. But we were pretty able to keep the staff because, you know, if you invested so much time and energy and getting a really and we had quite a senior team as well. So we needed to have the good quality staff. And then by about the um, January, we nearly got back to where we were the year before. And then actually last year, we almost doubled from January through to December. Now, part of that was hitting the e-commerce bubble. Um, so we were we had a few we had a few wins on e-commerce and we already we always had about. I would say about a third of our clients are e-commerce, both a mix of B2B and B2C. So, you know, not only the sort of, you know, your, your shoes and, um, you know, pets and things like that, but we had labels and uh, cases and sort of things that would, would um, be suitable for both markets. Um, but we never, we never charged a percentage of ad spend. So we were always based on fees. So a lot of agencies absolutely went, you know, scattered you know they went through the atmosphere they absolutely went off and a lot of theirs was based on the fact that they were charging a percentage of ad spend um but because we didn't do that we grew more mod, more moderate moderate we still nearly doubled which is still a pretty impressive growth but actually the limiting factor for us was getting the staff because we wasn't we weren't prepared to sacrifice quality so we also saw during that period and absolutely, you know, salaries from you know, two years before were £10,000 more expensive. So we were having to, do, to recruit at quite a senior level because there wasn't time to train people. You know, you couldn't do the boot camp thing and bring in your grads. You had to train people that knew what they were doing. So we ended up in a, in, in a growth situation with a lot of really good staff, but quite top heavy. So that meant that we really weren't making any money at all profit-wise. We just had good quality work and we were managing to keep on the clients and grow the clients. Um, and then that sort of um, continued till about November time. And then things got a little bit um, wobbly around November when we went back into another lockdown. I think people were feeling a little bit nervous. Um, and then again, sort of around the sort of January, February time, it sort of plateaued. Um, we were really lucky and that we started to do this boot camp training. So we sort of were able to keep people, even though we weren't necessarily making any great profit at that point. But we were able to keep the staff because we wanted to invest for the future growth. Um, but then come March, um, you suddenly see a lot of very worried people knocking on your door saying, you know, I don't understand what's happened. My, my e-commerce business has collapsed. Um, you know, I'm only getting half the sales. And to start with, it was quite quite accusational. You know, what have you done wrong? <laughs> you know, what's the agency exactly. done wrong? Did you Classic. get that too? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, yeah, what the hell have you done? And and I was sort of saying, well, actually, because um, we use quite a lot of external tools, so one of them is SimilarWeb, which allows you to compare people year on year. Um, 
So I wrote an article a couple of months ago about the fact that I was really worried about the market and how you could tell whether it was your market or whether it was, you know, your business or everybody else. So I had a lot of clients that were, you know, they were either doing the same as they were last um, last year or maybe 10% up, were really unhappy that they weren't 50 or 100% up. And then I sort of said to them, hey, come on, guys, you know, if you look at what everybody else is doing, the whole market is 50% down. The fact that you're, you know, you're where you were, you should be really lucky um or you know you so first of all it meant that a lot of clients were really scared um it also meant that you had to spend a lot of time justifying and actually saying compared with you know look using a lot of competitor data which in a way we're not really needed to we never really had to justify ourselves before because if you're always getting 20 percent or more growth why do you need to justify yourself um but i'm glad we'd invested in the tools to allow us to do that because we've been collecting the information for over a year. So we've got quite a lot of historical data. So that was quite a relief. But my concern is, um, I think this is going to have a lot of big impact. So first of all, it's more difficult to make money now. And there's so many factors, you've got all the factors around inflation, you've got people with less money in their pockets to spend. There's certain sectors that are really, really down, you know, furniture was 80 90% down. Um, and uh, you've got a lot of people scraping our, you know, trying to get the same customers. So I think we'll see a lot of businesses go under in the next six months, is my honest opinion. But I also think it's going to have quite a big impact on agencies. So we have lost a few of those clients that just can't make it work anymore. And we're the sort of agency that look at the numbers and say, look, we don't think you can afford to do this. We think probably we need to agree to go our separate ways and you know hopefully in the future you'll be able to come back but they just can't afford to pay for an agency to do the work for them when they're in a in a declining market or they've got to dump all the um you know the seo and the pr and just focus on paid because that will bring them sales now so it's very short-termist approach but if you go back to the scenario in the boom where agencies were being paid a percentage of spend some of them were making a lot of money and if I wasn't in such polite company I would have said a swear word to accompany that they were making loads of money um but now they're not getting those they're not getting that same income so I think what's going to happen is is that there will be a few agencies that will go bust because their whole infrastructure was based on the sort of you know we've recruited all these people we're charging massive fees based on volume but actually, if that volume disappears, you know, what are they going to do? Are they going to are those people going to go back into the labor market? Um, and you're already seeing that with some of the big tech. So I think we might see a bit of a swing round and the companies that maybe didn't grow as fast in the last 18 months, they may, you know, they may do a little bit better. Um, and actually having a diverse um, portfolio of clients, which includes Lee Gen. You know, we do some stuff with local tourism, councils, training and things. I think it makes us a little bit um, more safe with, um, than having a whole portfolio of just e-commerce clients um, um, or being an e-commerce business yourself um, and, you know, being reliant on things like paid media, performance media. If you've not invested in your brand, I think you're going to find it tough. I absolutely agree. And I think uh, those who have invested throughout the time in their brand, both e-commerces or agencies, they will have 
something to gain out of it, even though it, it sounded costly when you look in, in your PL, you know, all the, the expenses with, with branding. But um, at the end of the day, I think there's a lot of um, um, emotional attachments to, to brands. There's a lot of, uh, as you mentioned, you know, you need, you need to be very transparent and very honest about who you are, your culture, your brand. And your your clients will hear that and will will resonate with with your messages, um, and I think that's that's crucial, along with um, with looking very carefully at your costs. Um, yes, what, what, what you mentioned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If if, um, if we can develop a little bit on, on that, I think it's it's crucial for our audience to uh, to pay attention to costs as well. Yeah, the other, I mean. Um, it was really interesting because uh, um, obviously I can't mention who they are, but we were driving quite a lot of traffic to one particular um, website, which was um, affected. It was related to holidays and things, but I won't give you any more detail than that. Um, and they'd seen them, that their market was down by over 50%, probably near 80%. But we were driving more traffic. But what happened was with them, they weren't being realistic about the external marketing uh, market conditions and their prices were the premium prices that they were achieving last year. And uh, they were just uncompetitive. Um, and um, the problem with things like Google ads and performance max and all the algorithmic triggered ads is, is that they uh, are really driven by um, the reaction of the user of seeing the ad and so if there's a lot of click-throughs to an ad because the product's cheaper, then they're going to get more visibility. It's, you know, sort of like um, a quality score issue. And price appears to be almost like a quality score issue when it comes to shopping ads because it has that impact. Um, and so if you are more expensive than everybody else, you know, you can drive as much traffic to that site as you like, but nobody's going to buy. And if you're... And I do think looking at the... This is where I'm looking at the data, but also looking at the effectiveness of your website there was a lot of new websites that came onto the market and were just taking advantage of the of the boom and the level of demand but actually those websites are pretty crap which is just to clarify is a technical marketing term to describe websites that are below par you know if this that's not a swear word that's that's a real technical marketing term and some of these websites are really awful and if you aren't prepared to invest in you know good quality creative you know, the brands we were just talking about and actually having a website that's effective, then in a way, you know, it's not surprising that those customers go somewhere else. Yeah, it was a hit and run strategy because it eventually worked as the, um, you know, the, uh, the demand on the market was skyrocketing and it was just normal that as long as they were present, they would make business. And get some and, sales. Yeah, yeah. And so we've got we, <laughs> a lot of businesses doing that and then just you know just dropped to to 10% of what they had before because they didn't build on their business they just you know took advantage of the market conditions so um I, i'd like to ask you what would you recommend for a business an online business in 2022 to uh to be very careful at for the um for the coming months how how should they plan for for winter, for autumn, you know, yeah, we're starting no, good, good we're question. starting Black Friday, Christmas, all the uh, all these campaigns. Should we expect growth? Should we uh, be cautious with costs? Should we hire more people? What's what's your perspective? Um, 
I, 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 I probably wouldn't be uh, increasing my cost base at this time. Um, I would probably be diverting um, um, activities and budgets towards things that are actually going to get profitable sales now. Um, the problem with any business is if you, you can only run out of cash once, you know, you can, um, and I know this because, you know, from personal circumstances and when things haven't gone right in the past. So, you know, once you run out of cash, you run out of a business. So, you know, it's, it's no good. You can't be too long term. You know, it's great to be investing in the brand and having great quality. But if you've only got a certain amount of budget to go around, then you've really got to invest in getting the sales. But you've got to get the, the sales profitably. So um, we will we are expecting um, after a massive boom over the last two years that a lot of the channels are going to see a decline in ad spend. So um, what that that happened at the beginning of COVID, if you if you remember. So there will be opportunities to get traffic when other people aren't spending money. So one of the things that you should always do is invest in marketing when there's a recession, because if you can keep the lights on. Um, but you do need to look at profitable channels. Um, so I know it's really boring, but my, you know, I would say that the, the main things you've got to look at is obviously Google shopping. Um, we need to look at, um, depending on what audience you're in, but we de definitely need to look at Facebook because the costs can be quite lower. And then you probably need to look at marketplaces as well because an advertising marketplaces to get you. So they're pretty, pretty standard channels, but it's how you get them to work together that I think is the powerful stuff. So um, if you look at some of these channels, um, they, well, all these channels really are going towards an automation route. So if you, uh, I know you'll agree with this, Annabella, but what Google calls a smart campaign, you know, setting up a smart account, I think is a stupid account. You've got no control, no data, and actually behind the scenes, you can't see anything. Now, that's just like an express account. That's not the same as a proper... It's a black Google. box. Yes, it's a black box. And you can, in fact, you can see more data in analytics than you can in, in Google. So avoid that like the plague. So if you've set up something like that, you need to... And what I would do is um, you, a lot of local agencies will give you a free audit and give you an honest opinion of what the status of your account is. So if you're in the e-commerce land, you know, there's lots of people. I mean, for example, we've got a data studio report that we can run. As long as we connect it, we can get quite a lot of information. And maybe I can offer that out to the team and, you know, as, as something that, that the audience does something we can do. Now, if you then migrate up to a proper Google Ads account or a Bing account, et cetera, is um, there's a lot of um, smart campaigns, which are around smart bidding, targeting um, and audiences. And, and they're all migrating to something called Performance Max. Now, it's petrifying because it's, it's more of a black box. But actually, if you can afford to let it run for a little while, we have found that a lot of them work really, really well and get some brilliant results. Um, and it's just about educating yourself. So if you are running something in-house and you haven't got the experience, you really do need to do the training so that you're not allowing something to run where you don't really know what you're doing. Um, because it's it, it's actually cheaper to spend the money on the training or employing an agency than it is to waste the money on Google. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, you, you need that level of education. So there is some great opportunities there. And similar with things like um, catalog ads, 
ads remarketing over in Facebook. They can be really powerful and you can get some great results. And, and, and you know, somebody tells you, hey, I've done a 3% ROAS on Facebook. You know, you want to laugh at them because if you can't get more than six to one, then you're not making any money. And, um, you know, don't, don't be fooled by the hype. What I'm really excited is, is when you start to join things together. So a lot of the work that we do is, and it doesn't matter whether it's business to business or business to consumer, is to try and understand the, the user journey a little bit more. So certain types of ads um, within paid social and also YouTube, that is video view ads, are really cheap. So you're talking about one or two pence in UK terms, cents, whatever, to get a video view. Um, even in LinkedIn, if you're targeting a business audience, it's sort of 10 to 50p, which is really cheap compared with five, six dollars or more um, a click to get them over to your website. So what you need to be doing is, is, is driving them down the funnel. So get a great video, um, really catchy, something that's going to attract their attention and um, but educate them enough that if they actually watch that video and they get 75% or 100% through, you can put them into an audience and then you can use that audience to do remarketing and then actually get them over to the website. Um, and then once you've got them to the website, um, and you can do this in other channels like Pinterest as well, um, and if it's a real consumer, um, you know, you can use uh, things like TikTok to drive them to the website, etc. But once you've got them over to the website, you can cookie them with any platform and then you can do remarketing. And that's when you can do things like remarketing for search, RLSAs, for shopping ads, et cetera. And then it's that second stage where you might be spending some more money, but you're spending it on a warm audience that's much more likely to, to, to convert. So convert. that's what I'm really, really excited about. The other thing that I'm really excited about, which is um, we're just about to partner with a South African agency called Conversion Science, and we're already working with them is what they do is they do um, a lot of stuff where they take the first party data that you've got within your company. That could be within your CRM system. It could be within your e-commerce system. It could be, um, you know, just telephone data and use that to link back into analytics and into the ad platforms. So this is things like creating custom audiences, retention strategies, or just identify that if a website, for example, you've got a really high value web um, product or a b2b and you get a lead well does that end up converting into a sale how can you use that for enhanced e-commerce tracking etc so to me that's the really exciting stuff where you're actually using data you know stock availability um creating massive campaigns using sort of um uh, sql databases or excel macros to feedback and that's where an agency or a, you know, a good e-commerce um, business which is prepared to invest in it can differentiate themselves from those you know, automated, everybody's doing the same thing, designed for people that never done anything you know, over on the other side. So you've got the sort of really high skill stuff and then the real sort of standard, um, you know, where, you know, you're just competing with everybody else. Yeah, so it's actually uh, all the clients are asking us uh, why should we continue to pay you if we have performance max and we have the automated campaigns in, in Facebook, we can just turn them on. But I think that there's also some secret that we get from testing different approaches and it's more like switching from a manual car to an automatic car you still need a driver to drive that car it's not going to exactly. run itself you know exactly so. 
Yeah, and, and we we spend we spend less time in you know clicking the buttons, but rather checking the map and where we need to go. What's the shortest road? What's the the more optimized road to get in order to to achieve our objective? No, absolutely. And the thing with performance max and smart campaigns is, I think I don't know whether it's changed, but um, from from memory, it's a hundred campaigns. So if you've got tens of thousands of products, you know, which ones do you choose and how do you structure the hierarchy in order to get the coverage across the different products? But most of the bidding strategies involve some tweaking. So, for example, on a ROAS bid, um, you know, so maximize conversions with a ROAS target of five, five hundred percent. Okay. so you look at your data and you say, actually, I'm doing six hundred. That's great. So why don't I increase it slightly? Let's increase it to 600 and see what happens. And that's brilliant. You do really, really well. And what happens then is that you actually get um, you get 650. And, and But then when you go to 650, suddenly the volume drops. So if you can automate that, like you would with a bid management system, you suddenly get into a level of sophistication where, you know, is that across all products that you change the bid or all campaigns? So to me, that's where the really interesting stuff's happening. And that's the stuff that I'm investigating now. Yeah. And to relate to that, since we as a web development agency get this question a lot, when is it, is it a good time for a merchant, for a brand to start talking and working with an agency to actually structure the digital marketing? This is a question for both of you, probably. It's, it's, a, it's a really good question because there is economies of scale. So I do a sur- I've been doing a survey for the last couple of years. And interestingly, people work with freelancers, agencies. It's almost like a U-shaped curve. They, look, they work yeah. at them when they're really, really small. And there's maybe two of them and they just can't cope anymore. And I would suggest that normally they would have a turnover of, say, 50,000 dollars um to maybe you know a hundred thousand dollars that's a good sweet spot because they're making enough money that but they need the help to grow and then you've got um a bit in the middle where they may bring in their own team um they employ somebody and they may not need you again so they think oh yeah this is great i can do it all and then they suddenly realize that this one person who's trying to do ppc paid social email SEO, um, change the website and everything else can't cope with all the things that we need to know. You know, you need an agency of 30 to do that. Um, And then they get to a point where actually they they have a sort of epiphany and they say, well, actually, I need somebody that, you know, really knows um, paid search uh, in detail or I might need an um, e-commerce specialist in Amazon or a CRO specialist, etc. So they then they then then re-engage with agencies and then they become more like partners um, and actually, the, those are the relationships I like because then you know you're working together with their team, and actually, what you're trying to do is raise the raise the bar of the quality of the, the work that happens internally. And you know, my philosophy is you let the agency do the stuff that you can't do yourself. So if you've got a great content writer, then they can do the SEO and you can do the technical, for example. Uh, what do you think, Annabella? Do you do you have the same experience? Um, yeah, I completely agree with you. And I think that um, it's crucial for each e-commerce manager or e-commerce business owner to understand the stage where they are and what resources they need because they might not get all the resources in-house. There's the tendency of being a, 
control freak and having everything in house. <laughs> it can make sense sometimes, but um, the gay agency comes with, um, you know, the different vertical reports and uh, more technical expertise. If that, if you put that together with your business expertise, then it's the the magic. It's where the magic yeah, happens. Absolutely. You know? And um, I would not say that having somebody in house it's bad, but uh, you need somebody who can coordinate the different you know um, elements. You might be working with three agencies for different services because they're specialized in different things. Um, but you definitely need somebody um, um, to aggregate everything and to, to come up with the business vision and the direction that they need to, to take in order to make everything happen, you know. And we yeah. also work as, as, um, as and as we, we uh, work really closely with our, our clients to make sure we understand the business, we understand their pros and the cons of their competition, what's their approach, uh, the branding, messaging, uh, the buyer persona, uh, and all this stuff in order to come then with our technical knowledge and click that button or build <laughs> those strategies. You know, you can't build strategies because there's no one-size-fits-all strategy. You can apply for all your clients. You need to be a little bit more tailor-made and to make sure that whatever we are implementing in the campaigns um, suits that, uh, that particular business. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, in addition to the um, fact that, you know, if you work with an agency, effectively, you know, you could have a team of six people, which you obviously couldn't afford to employ. So... A lot of the stuff like content and stuff tends to be the first people they employ. It's also the tools and data that we've got access to. Exactly. So, um, all the, you know, all the specialist tools. I mean, you know, if you, it's horrendous the amount of money we spend in tools. We spend sort of 5% of our revenue just on tools, just for tech. That doesn't include running the business. Um, mm -hmm. and, but that is the data that makes us able to do our job better. Um, but also it's the ability to benchmark. You know, we know what good looks like. Um, and um, we can learn from a client maybe that's got more money um, and more budget where they're prepared to experiment and try new things and then apply it to smaller, co uh, smaller companies. So one of the things I would advise people is, is if they are going to work with an agency, make sure they work with, agent, uh, with clients that are bigger than you so that, um, that you know, you aren't the biggest client. You're not the biggest client, but, um, but you, you, they've got experience with clients that are bigger than you because or even in the same sector, because they'll learn a lot of the lessons and then you can benefit from that. Totally yeah, agree with that. And it's really, really valuable insight. Thanks, Anne, for, for bringing that up. Yeah, thank you. And I think this is probably already making some of our listeners think and maybe want to get in touch with you, Anne. So how can they reach you? Um, I think LinkedIn's probably the easiest because I've got a very, very, I've been on LinkedIn for so long that I actually have Anne Stanley as my LinkedIn handle. Um, everybody finds it really difficult to spell and pronounce the agency name. So the agency is spelled A-N-I-C-C-A dot co dot UK, Annika. It's nothing to do with my name, which is why it's one N and two Cs. It's actually Buddhist for impermanence, which means everything's changing all the time. Um, we do run weekly webinars, um, and we've got a library of over 200 of them. So it's definitely worth people coming to the, to the website and checking out the webinars that we've run. Um, and then I've also got something called the A10 framework, which you can download. So we're pretty resort. We give a lot of information away, so you can go and help yourself to loads of um, 
I think the webinars are our real strength because we've been doing pretty much one a week since for, for over two years now. Um, so I definitely think you can go and take advantage of a lot of that information that's all on the site for free. And then if you want to message or connect to me on LinkedIn um, and uh, Anne Stanley, that would be amazing. Sure. Um, so just to wrap things up, and um, if you were to um, to give one piece of advice out of all our conversation, what would it be? What's the magic? Okay. Well, one bit of advice is you've got to get your act together with GA four um, because <laughs> because um, it's going to come up before you know it. So if you haven't already in, installed it, you need to get your act together with that because you're going to find that you've got you know you're not going to have overlapping data. So definitely spend some time learning GA4 and Data Studio because at least in Data Studio, you'll be able to blend the data from both. Because I think, you know, without proper data, you can't really make proper decisions. So any any data you can find, um, you know, about what's happening, that's really important. Um, and then work smarter. So, you know, invest in your own training um, play around with, you know, combinations of different types of campaigns. Um, just elevate from just doing the standard stuff. Um, so you might need to be to do some training and some webinars and all of that. Um, but don't waste your money. Keep, you know, be careful with your cash because it's going to be a tight few months. Um, I think until the other side of Christmas, uh, when we sort of start to know how things have settled down. Um, so invest in things that are going to make you profitable sales now um, and, you know, tr and don't turn the lights out. Keep on marketing. There's about four things there. That's terrible. Tell me one thing. I'll tell you four. I did warn you I'd do this. I'm so sorry, guys. <laughs> so, OK, one thing. GA4, get that sorted. <laughs> Thank you. <Yeah>. Noted. <laughs> I'm not very good at one things. <laughs> Thanks so much, Jen. Really appreciate your time with us, uh, your thoughts um, and ideas. Uh, we'll be looking forward to having you for our next episode sometime soon. <laughs> and um, lovely to, to kickstart the Women in uh, E-Commerce show with, uh, with you. Appreciate Thank it. Thank you so much, guys. Really appreciate the invite and uh, speak to you all soon. Bye. Thank Bye. you, Anne. Bye. Bye-bye, everyone.